And now please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, in November of 2002, I was teaching at Eton College in England, and my parents came over to visit. And after they visited for a time, my father and I took a special trip across the English Channel to northern France. Now, during this trip, we rented a car, a car that was a standard shift car, and so my father thought it was a good time to teach me how to drive standard. (laughs) which led to me stalling out in various French towns and having lots of angry angry Frenchmen behind me honking their horns at this American. My father thought this was was funny. Um, It wasn't. (laughs) But one of the things that we did while we were over there was to visit various battlefields. My father and I uh, shared a mutual love for military history. And so we went to the battlefields in Normandy. And then at my insistence, we made a trip over to the battlefield of the Somme. And I'll never forget driving into that battlefield and the feeling that came upon me when I was there. I've been to several battlefields, and not even the battlefield at Gettysburg moved me as deeply as walking those fields for the Battle of the Somme. The Battle of the Somme uh, ran from July 1st, 1916 until mid-November 1916. In that time period, some three million men on both sides were involved in the battle, And there were a million casualties as men either died or wounded in one battle at the Somme. Now, the background for it was straightforward enough. The beginning of the First World War on the Western Front, uh, the Germans invaded, and then the French and the British pushed them back. And then in 1915, the lines uh, were fairly well established. In order to break the stalemate in 1916, the British and French decided to compile all their forces into one place and to have one massive push to try and break through the German lines. The place where they decided to do that was the Somme. And so for a week before the beginning of the assault, uh, the British and French had gathered a huge portion of their artillery pieces and launched one of the most massive artillery barrages in history on the German lines there to soften them up. And then on July 1st, uh, 1916, July 1st, 1916, uh, at 7 a.m., the guns stopped, and then about 20 or 30 minutes later, uh, the whistles blew, and the British and French soldiers went over the top. Now, the British made two key errors on that first day. Uh, The first error they made was that they assumed that the Germans made their trenches the same way that the British made their trenches, and that wasn't the case. British trenches, the British trenches were much more rudely uh, constructed than the German ones. The German ones actually were able to, withstart, to withstand the bombardment, and the British assumed that they had been obliterated. The second mistake they made, that for some unexplicable reason, there was a delay of 20 to 30 minutes between the end of the bombardment and when those first soldiers went over the top. So by the time the British soldiers met the German lines, the Germans had had time to come out and come back to their machine gun emplacements and get ready to start mowing down the British soldiers. As you walk uh, at that battlefield, uh, there is a small museum that's sponsored by the Canadian government in honor of the Canadian soldiers who died at the Somme. And they have an exhibit for the 1st Newfoundland Regiment. Uh, 1st Newfoundland Regiment on uh, July 1st had 801 people reporting for active service. On July 2nd, they had 68. It it was the highest casualty rate of any unit uh, of any of the British or Commonwealth forces uh, in British history. 
for one day's for one day's worth of battle. On that first battle of the Somme, on July for, on the first day, on July first, uh, 1916, uh, the British had 57,000 casualties in one day. And you, when you're there, you can you can still see where the trenches were because even though they filled in slightly and they're covered with grass, you can still walk that land. You can still walk no man's land there. As you drive by, you can see the huge craters in the ground where the British had uh, blown up large amounts of explosives to try and break through uh, the German lines. And as you're going through the countryside, another thing that, that you see is dotted periodically along the road are cemeteries. The British have a tendency to bury their dead, their war dead, uh, near the battlefields where they fell. And I remember my father and I stopping at one of these cemeteries and wandering through them, and again, rows of crosses, these crosses of white stone that have been faded over time, but you can still read the inscriptions on them very clearly. And I took time to read these inscriptions, and one thing you run into time and again are inscriptions that read, known only to God. Because by the time they retrieved the bodies from no man's land, the bodies were so badly mangled they couldn't identify who they were. In some cases, they have the day in which the person died, their unit and their rank, and still known only to God because so many people of that rank and that unit died that day, they didn't know who it was. And then going back to Eaton College, when you go into the main uh, square, the main uh, yard at Eaton, as you walk in, if you turn around, across the entire back wall are the lists of the Old Etonians who died in the First World War. There were a thousand Old Etonians who died in World War I, uh, roughly 20% of the total number who signed up. And in, in, the British, so in, in, in the British forces during the First World War, officers had a higher casualty rate than enlisted men because the officers were, inspected, were expected to lead the charges over the top in the trenches. But no matter how brave you were, no matter how athletic you were, uh, when you're faced with machine guns and barbed wire, uh, that's, not much, that's not much use. And so you can imagine, given the devastation, you can imagine the feelings that must have been going through people's hearts and minds 100 years ago today. Because it was on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918 when finally, after four years of devastation, the fighting stopped. And so today, uh, we take a moment to remember, to remember what happened during that conflict, and also to remember what's happened in conflicts both domestically and abroad ever since. This morning, I was reading the newspaper, and I ran across an article that talked about how, how important it is to remember because so many people have forgotten it was in 2012 when the last of the World War I veterans had died, so no one's around who fought in that conflict anymore. Uh, we're losing, uh, by the day, more and more of the World War II veterans. There aren't many of those left anymore. And as we think of people, especially in a younger generation, uh, they've never seen a major war. We've been very good in our conflicts recently to try and have the conflicts affect society as little as possible, even though they're going on. It's hard to believe that we're still in the midst of the longest war in American history right now, and yet you don't see much mention of it. But it's important to remember, because that's what we do on a day like today, remember and commemorate. First of all, to remember the cost of war in, in terms of lives. You think of uh, the people who died, uh, again, not only in the First World War, but in World War II, 
all the people who died in Korea, in Vietnam, and the two Iraq wars and other conflicts that the U.S. has been involved in, all the soldiers in other places who died. It's important to remember that war is awful, and the toll of war is horrible. Think of the grieving widows. Think of the parents who lost their children far too young. Siblings, they don't see their siblings anymore. Best friends lost forever. The cost of war is high. It's important to remember that. And also remember that innocent lives are always lost in war. Regardless of what happens, innocent people, civilians, always end up paying a price. I remember a few years ago, not long after I arrived here at at FCC, uh, we had a men's lunch where we saw a videotape uh, of Rick Ricard, who had, uh, was an old member of this, a longtime member of this church, um, and he was telling his experience of, of World War II. He's a chemist in, in World War II, working for Standard Oil in New Jersey, now Exxon. And his duty during World War II was to develop uh, accelerants for firebombs that the U.S. would use. And so he spent his time researching technology for firebombs. Now, firebombs, of course, were not intended for military targets. They were intended for civilian targets. And so the firebombs that he helped develop were used to bomb Dresden and kill many people there. The firebombings of Tokyo uh, killed more people than the combined deaths at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And Rick had to deal with that guilt for the rest of his life, that he was involved in that, that innocent people died because he did his job well. It's important to remember also the monetary cost of war. The only thing that truly destabilizes the economic order in any country is war. During World War II, the top tax rate, again, was up to 90%. Wars are expensive. Wars mean you can't spend money on other types of priorities. Wars overturn society. If you want to protect what you have, the best thing to do is to stay out of war. Now, the prophet Isaiah, where our reading comes from this morning, was well aware of the cost of war. In the 8th century BC, on a per capita basis, far more people died in violence than die today. He would have known firsthand what it was like uh, to suffer in in the midst of a war. And wars then were very brutal. When you lost a war, you lost everything back in the 8th century. They would take all your property as loot. They would take whoever they wanted as slaves. Uh, It was a nasty time. And so the prophet Isaiah says says unequivocally that God's will is a will for peace. Where swords will be beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. And we won't study war anymore. That's God's ideal for the future. Something we need to hold on to on a day like today. But also as we look back on World War I, on this anniversary... I think it's also important to remember how World War I got started. World War I was not, you, you, you can't look at World War I and say, oh, here, here are some great forces of good versus evil. It's easy to look at World War II and say, okay, Nazis, the, the embodiment of evil, you know, the Americans fighting for liberty, democracy. You can look at various conflicts during the Cold War and try and create a similar dichotomy between Uh, the evils of communism and the suffering that people endured under communism and the benefits of a liberal democratic system that we were fighting for. People might even look post-September 11th and try and see, again, 
uh, forces of good and evil arrayed against one another. But World War I was different, and that's why it's important to remember how such an amazingly devastating conflict could get started. World War I was fought at a time when the, when, when, when the countries of Europe were at the peak of their prosperity. Things were going really well when World War I started. Not only that, the countries of Europe uh, were relatively close. I mean, both Kaiser Willem II and George V of England were grandchildren of Queen Victoria. They were cousins. And yet somehow this war started. The war started for a variety of reasons, the first of which was people had forgotten how devastating war could be. People were eager for war. The sparking incident that started World War I was the assassination of the heir to the Austrian throne, uh, Franz Ferdinand, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, on June 28, 1914, while he was visiting Sarajevo in Serbia. It was known at the time that the Archduke was assassinated by a splinter group not associated with the Serbian government. And yet, the Austrians used it as a pretense to invade and annex Serbia. They wanted territory, they wanted war, they were willing to fight. And then, when the Austrians had signaled their intention to do this, their ally, the German Empire, led by Kaiser Willem, gave them a so-called blank check, said, whatever you do, we will support you 100%. Kaiser Willem was as eager for war as anyone else, and he said, do whatever you want, I got your back. When the Austrians eventually gave an ultimatum to the Serbians, uh, which had you know, outrageous terms that the Serbians had to accept to avoid, avoid war, the Serbians actually accepted the terms, and Austria invaded anyway. Another factor, in addition to a desire for war, and this amnesia of how bad war can be, another factor is ethnic nationalism had a big role in the start of World War I. The Serbians were Slavs, and the Russians uh, felt like they needed to defend other Slavic people, whatever the cost. So Tsar Nicholas and his advisors said to the Serbians, we will defend you and go to war with Austria if they invade you. They didn't need to say that. There were other options there, but they did that. Ethnic nationalism played a role in the beginning of, first, of the First World War. But there was a third factor, a very important third factor you need to bear in mind, and that's the power of military timetables and the military-industrial complex. You see, all the major armies of World War I had these mobilization schedules. In order to actually be ready to fight, they had to fully mobilize. That took time, and they knew exactly how much time it would take. And the last thing they wanted to do was be unprepared. So as soon as one country mobilized, every other country in Europe had to mobilize to be ready. And once the soldiers were ready to fight, it was kind of hard to stop them from going ahead and fighting. And the Germans, uh, ever since the 1890s, had been encircled by a treaty between the French and the Russians. Therefore, they had a famous war plan called the Schlieffen Plan that's saying, hey, if, if we do get in war with either France or Russia, we have to, do, we have to implement this plan, which was we, we're going to knock out France first, and then we're going to take care of Russia. So even though France had not committed to this conflict yet, the Germans had committed to invading France. And part of the Schlieffen plan was to go through Belgium in order to do it, which brought, which brought Britain into the conflict. But the Germans felt that they had no choice but to put this plan into operation once mobilization started. Because once mobilization started, they had to put their units on the Western Front so they could actually execute the plan. 
And so, by this series of events, one thing that happened that could have avoided war ended up launching into a war that cost millions of lives. And when you look around today, it's scary to see how close we are to some potential conflict. Whether it be with China and the South China Sea, who knows what could happen. Most obviously in the Korean Peninsula, you could also look at uh, Iran. You could look at conflicts between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Around the world, place after another, there is a potential powder keg for some sort of conflict. How are we going to prevent that from happening? Now, the Christian response to war is fairly straightforward, I think. Christians say unequivocally that all of us are made in the image and likeness of God. We are to put God above our loyalty to nation. We are to see, as fellow children of God, every other person in the world. Whether that person be North Korean, or Iranian, or Chinese, or South American, whatever it is, or Russian, they're all children of the same God. And so a violent or an overly strident nationalism is dangerous and against what Jesus would have for us to do. We have to see all people together. That is a Christian response. A second Christian response is Jesus is someone who went to the cross voluntarily rather than engage in a violent revolt. There were a lot of Jews who were ready to revolt at the time of Jesus. Jesus was looked to to be a Messiah and a leader of these revolts, and he chose not to do that. He chose to try and break the cycle of violence by showing love. That's a calling that we have as Christians. How can we show love when others might want to show hate? in order to bring about peace. Now, the reality is we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is beset by sin. We live in a world that does have human beings. And as a result of living in a fallen world, it is necessary for us to have armed forces and to have people who are willing to go fight in wars. And on today, one of the things we do is we lift up and we give thanks for those people who have served, those people who have made that sacrifice, those people who have been willing to step up. We remember those who have died, And we honor them and remember them for having done that. But we also have the Christian calling to advocate for peace so that they don't have to do that in the future. Now, one thing that I would ask you to do today as a way to commemorate this day is for you to share some sort of stories, personal stories you might have with someone else about some sort of war conflict. I know there are those of you who have fought in war, who are veterans who are here in this room. Do other people know that? Have you talked about what it was like? Many of you, especially those of you who are older, have lived through a wartime that younger people might not have lived through. Have you talked about what it was like to live through the Vietnam War? To live through perhaps even Korea World War II if you were old enough for that experience and shared that with others? It's important for people to remember the consequences of war so that we can try and work together to build up peace. That's what God is calling us to do today. And I hope it's something that we're all committed to.